0: Hey, this is Robert. I wanted to give you a quick heads up about uh, our November shows. Um, We have decided to cancel our November 8th show in San Diego at Tiger Tiger Tavern because that date also happens to be one of national, nay, intergalactic importance. This election season has been interminably long and incredibly painful, and after much hand-wringing, we have decided that we want to encourage people to vote to help others uh, getting to vote, and then to watch the fruits of that labor be tallied and announced to the world on November 8th. So even though we love the respite and the warmth that a good story can provide as counterpoint to politics, we feel that this election is too important to offer distraction from. So let's all dive headlong into the hope for a better tomorrow. Our November show in Denver is on November 16th at Bumpport Theater. And then both cities will resume regular programming come December. The theme in Denver on November 16th is overindulgence. Also, stay tuned for news of our 2017 themes. Your faithful hosts are whittling down the list and are excited to share them with you, the good people. We hope to do that in the coming days. Next storyteller. All right, next storyteller. This next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Welcome to the narrator's podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. Today's story comes to you from Kirsten Imani Kasai, a novelist, poet, and essayist. She has mountains of work available through her website, and is also the fiction editor and publisher of Body Parts magazine, The Journal of Horror and Erotica. And it is as awesome as it sounds. She shared this story at our San Diego show at Tiger Tiger Tavern on September 13th. The theme of the evening was change of heart.
1: Enjoy. So this is a story about my dad and the kerfuffle that happened when I came out to him. Religion has a way of imposing its messages on you, of corralling and controlling your thinking even when you don't believe those messages. Growing up, I don't remember my parents ever saying anything overtly homophobic to me, but somehow, somewhere, the power of those beliefs espoused by the southern side of my family became such an oppressive force that it effectively suppressed my identity as a gay woman until I came out officially at age 40. In my coming out group at the LGBT Community Center in Hillcrest, I listened to stories similar to mine and stories a lot worse than mine. Religion, shame, and family disapproval were always strong silencing forces that demeaned or diminished young souls and twisted them out of shape. Now it takes a lot of work to untie all the knots that other people make in us. And sometimes it's just easier to be a pretzel than a person. So my dad grew up in Alabama under Jim Crow laws. His father was a well-respected Methodist minister, and eventually my dad followed suit, becoming a minister himself. In 1964, he eloped with my mother, a white woman, also the daughter of a Methodist minister. Loving versus Virginia, the Supreme Court ruling that ended prohibitions against interracial marriage was still three years away. My parents were active in the civil rights movement. My dad had marched in Washington, D.C., and with Martin Luther King on Selma. So every year, he drove us to Alabama to spend summer vacation with his parents. And he'd go back to Denver to work during the summer and pick us up again before school started. And I always came home with a bit of southern drawl and twang. So once when I was about 12, he came back to Alabama to pick us up was really happy to see him uh, for the first time in weeks, but he greeted me with this statement, I heard you've been bad. I never knew what I'd done wrong, and it haunted me. Was it my laziness in memorizing the books of the Bible? Had I eaten too much candy, cussed, or acted fast, taken the Lord's name in vain, because Jesus Christ knew I did that all the goddamn time? (laughs) So how could I be bad when I hadn't even known that I'd misbehaved? It was clear then that he knew something about me that I didn't. So my parents divorced when I was 10, and I was 19 when my mom died of cancer. He and I were incommunicado while I was dating women in my late teens and early 20s. In the 1990s San Francisco, I was an out and proud dyke, back when saying dyke was okay, <laughs> and everybody said it, and it was totally cool. Uh, I loved that while it lasted. But back then, I couldn't marry a woman. Legally, it would be hard to have, a chil- to have children or a family. And worst of all, I knew that I could never tell my father. The obstacles seemed insurmountable. Living the way I wanted would also mean a life of secrecy and lies, Fear of family disapproval and censure shut me up tight, and I withdrew into relationship with the man I'd be with off and on for 18 years. We had two kids, and I tried to do what was expected of me, which was not date women. Quietly unhappy and lonely and longing for something he couldn't provide, I was lost from myself. And then when I turned 40, something changed like the shift in weather that occurs at the spring equinox when flowers burst into bloom at the flick of a celestial switch. And as I often do when I'm struggling, I sought comfort in the words of other writers. The mythologist Joseph Campbell said, we must be willing to let go of the life we had planned so as to accept the life that is waiting for us. And the idea of letting go was so tantalizing and so terrifying. I knew that I was loved, but I was also afraid, yet greater was the fear that my silence would be the death of me and I didn't want to die. As Audre Lorde famously said, your silence will not protect you. I had to speak my truth. I finally confessed to my dad Twice divorced and acrimoniously, he didn't react well to news of my own split, and his outrage was shocking. Condemning emails assailed my inbox. He chastised me for ruining my children's life, my husband's life, nothing about my life. I was spoiled and selfish. He told me that I was a terrible parent, and I retaliated by listing his many failings My children had never ditched or failed their classes. My children didn't drink, get high, or hurt themselves. My children had never seen their father chase their mother through the house, eaten government cheese, worried about losing their home, or testified against their father in court, as had my siblings and I. My dad stopped talking to me for two years. We'd always had periods of closeness offset with an avoidance fueled by resentment, anger, and hurt. Over the years, I'd been the one to extend the olive branch. I never wanted to live with a well of bitterness festering inside me. I was used to his appearances and disappearances, but this was the first time it had been so punishing, a deliberate expression of his disappointment in me. The worst moment came at a family party he'd driven down from L.A. to attend. Gracious and charming to everyone else, he behaved as if I wasn't even there and looked past me, unspeaking. Months later, I was in L.A. for my grad school residency and invited him to meet me and my girlfriend for lunch. I didn't expect him to come, but he did. And he was all smiles, as if nothing unpleasant had passed between us. Keeping it light and chatty, we sailed right over those darker undercurrents in the water. And when we said goodbye, he embraced my partner like an old friend. He held me tight, and he told me that he loved me. And his skin was warm, and he smelled the same as he always had. Now, it's said that the human heart generates the largest electromagnetic field in the body, 40 to 60 times greater in amplitude than the brain's. Supposedly, the heart's magnetic field has a three-foot range, which is why we can feel or sense other people's emotions when they're close to us. So maybe that hug had a deeper effect on us. Families fight, after all, and dogma barks loudly. So when we talk about change, we learn that our discomfort and accusations are symptoms only of our own discomfort with ourselves. You know that old adage that when you point the finger at somebody else, there's three fingers pointing back at you. So Barbara Kingsolver writes, the changes we dread most may contain our salvation, I don't know what finally changed with him, his mind or his heart, or maybe it was me, but I'm really glad that it did. After that lunch, the rift between us slowly began to repair itself. I remembered the things I liked about him and the ways in which we were similar, our erudite and sometimes formal manner of speaking, our love of music and quirky habit of singing to or humming to ourselves as we pattered around the house our love of books and learning, and his Playboy magazines, which I pored over when he was not around. (laughs) He was so proud of me when Random House published my first novel. And all that meanness between us just melted away. By the time his prostate cancer advanced to the point of proving fatal, we'd only been back in touch for about a year. And when he went into the hospital for the last time, I was there with my brother and sisters, covering him with the clean extra blanket I happened to have in my car, holding his hands, stroking his hair and legs. His brown skin was really pale, and he was wild-haired and shrunken and gentle with us. And the last words he ever said to me were, I love you, and he closed his eyes, answering the call of the morphine, and he was gone. So I have noticed that there is a weird sense of karmic justice in the aftermath of his passing. So I always felt like the black sheep of the family, um, being the gay, non-religious, Wicca-practicing one. (laughs) So (laughs) I found it really ironic that I was the one elected to close out his estate. Um, And that at his funeral, showing my lack of religious education, which is shameful for a preacher's daughter. I was desperate for a swig of wine, and I went up to get communion, and I grabbed the cup out of the guy's hand and, like, forced it to my mouth, and he looked at me like, what the fuck are you doing? I was like, I need a glass of wine. And I went back to the pew and sat down. And my girlfriend was laughing at me. I was like, what? This is not the time or place. And as I sat down, I watched the other people come up and get communion. And they very decorously took the wafer. They dipped it in the cup, (laughs) put it in their mouth, and walked away. They didn't grab it like a cracker, (laughs) like shove it in like Cookie Monster, and then snatch the cup and guzzle the wine. (laughs) So it was like, (laughs) goes to show you, Dad. Um, (laughs) And the fact that um, I have a, a photo of him on my wall. And he's wearing his priestly vestments. You're so proud of them. It's a white pulpit gown and a rainbow stole. So it's a long piece of cloth that goes around your neck and hangs down. And it's rainbow colors. And I've, I've looked, and I was like, there's got to be some deeper meaning because, you know, you're supposed to wear a different color depending on the religious holiday and significance. And I can't really find anything for the rainbow. So I know that, biblically speaking, the rainbow is the symbol of a truce. It's God's visual apology to humankind. But it's also the proud flag of the gay nation. (laughs) And I like to imagine that it's his show of solidarity.
0: narrators is produced by robert rutherford mary robertson aaron rollman and me ron doyle our intern is sydney crane our theme music is by Whalehawk, and our founder and executive producer is andrew A very special thanks to our amazing sponsors legal Pizza, greater than records sexy pizza sex comedy from the hip photo and breckenridge brewery if you haven't already please subscribe to this podcast on itunes stitcher or your favorite podcast app